I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning. I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the pews. They will be a different translation than what I'll read from here, but close enough to follow along. And uh, while you're finding that address, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I would like to mention that two weeks from today, that'll be the 24th of the month, uh, we'll have a special guest, our missionary, Dan Standridge from Italy, and he'll be speaking during the Sunday school hour here in this room. From time to time when we have a missionary through, we'll do a combined Sunday school class That is optional, however. You can go to your normal class. You can come gather in here, or your class may decide we'll all go together as a group. I think it's safe to say that all the Sunday school classes could fit in here if they wanted to, so we don't have a seating issue. Um, But your teacher may give you more information about that as to whether or not the whole class is going, or you can choose. Some do, some don't. But it's a good way for us to get uh, an update from the Standridge's on uh, their work there in Italy. And also, it did come to my attention that in the bulletin we have a mistake. Some people like to find those, those circle misspellings or whatever else. But our building committee is not meeting this evening. We've got another time for that and had met uh, just a few days back. But uh, that affects about seven or eight of us. Don't be confused. The meeting doesn't take place tonight. All right, let's read together, and we'll read the whole um, fourth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes as our portion for today. I'll, be, I'll begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool holds his hands or folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, For who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, 
though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for his word. And let's bow and ask him for help. Father in heaven, yet again on another Sunday, your day, together with each other, brothers and sisters in Christ with our Bibles open in our lap, we ask for your help to understand. We also ask for your strength to obey. If you'll grant us these two things, Lord, it will have been of eternal significance to sit at your feet today. Lord, thank you for each that are here. And Lord, would you minister in those areas where there is need, where there's confusion and questions. Lord, may your word give us what we need. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, so far, the preacher, as he's referred to in this book, Ecclesiastes, we learned that in week one, that the man speaking in first person, that's how he's referred to, the preacher. And so far, he's highlighted the natural human desire to get ahead of creation itself, as if this world could be grabbed by the tail, and we store up its contents, what's good, what's valuable, and keep it forever. But that's just not the case. Instead, we're rather to live in harmony with the restraints that both the world and time naturally impose on us. That's a chore. But it can be done. Now in chapter 4, we just read, the preacher is going to highlight the human desire to get ahead of our neighbor. Not only do we try to master this world, but unfortunately sometimes we try to master our neighbor. Or at least outrun him. Or outclass him. Outcompete him. Whatever. You fill in the blank. Uh, Rather than living happily with the responsibilities that he or she as our neighbor place on us. We talked about this weeks ago, how there, there must be a balance. Because the world is broken, and to know people is to know sorrow. But it's worse to live on an island by yourself, not knowing anyone. So Solomon has told us, life is short. It's on loan from our Creator. One of these days, he's going to call it all in. We'll kick the bucket or punch our ticket, however you want to... Use a euphemism to describe something other than using the word die or death. He's quite comfortable using those terms. And what we've learned so far is that we should enjoy everything during the space of the breath that God has given us called life here under the sun. Not as gain, but as a gift. It's not meant for gain. We can't store it up and we can't take it with us. It's meant as a gift. That right there can change your whole outlook on life. If it's a gift, that's totally different than if it's for gain. Well, this morning, chapter 4, another layer is added. As you enjoy the gift of life, the preacher tells us we're supposed to share it with others. So not only is it a gift, not gain, but it's not you, it's us. Or not me, that'd be the better way to put it. It's an us. Or are we? The preacher tells us that we're going to have to share what we enjoy. 
Because as he's going to show us, we just read it, there are two ways to live in this world under the sun. You can either hate your neighbor and wind up destroying yourself. That's the first six verses. Or you can love your neighbor and so love yourself. That's in verses 7 through 16. So why don't we use that as a means of organizing the material into two pieces. One's a little more lengthy than the other. We'll probably spend more time in the first one. But here we go. Hating my neighbor and destroying myself. That's one option under the sun. He starts out with the description of wickedness and evil, but he gives us a little more specificity than he has in the first three chapters. There's more generalized evil and wickedness. Look back at verse 1. He uses the word again. I saw all the oppressions. Move on a bit forward. The tears of the oppressed. No one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressor was power. That means nobody's going to get in his way. He's powerful. He'll continue to oppress and people will continue to be oppressed and there will continue to be tears and no one to comfort them. Uh, Verse 2 gets awful depressing and reckons those that are gone better than those who remain and even worse with the verse 3. This is one of those... You know, we've, we've acknowledged the fact that this man who's writing this intends to shock and awe the listener with depressing, horrible, heavy things to think through. And this may be, um, I don't know if you'd call it the high water mark or maybe digging an extra couple of feet under the crawl space. It's either, it's, it's just bad. <laughs> and as far as words like oppression... Or the oppressed, which is a, you could use the word marginalized to sound less depressing. Or abuse, that's probably even worse yet. Or pain or betrayal. All that's covered there. And all of us know the definition of those terms, but not all of us know by experience how they feel. And the truth is, the world over, it's rampant. Uh, People are cruel creatures. How did we end last week's uh, discussion? That we'll eventually see ourselves as beasts? Yeah. There are ways in which humanity is far more cruel than one animal eating another in order to survive. you, You don't have to watch much of that stuff on TV to understand these things. So we have a difficulty here trying to put ourselves in this position. Um, For some, these words are the way of life. They're a living nightmare. But Solomon here, who seems to have a vantage point that we may not, seems quite upset about all of it to the tune that he congratulates the dead on being dead. At least you don't have to see what I'm seeing. And then never being born at all, he says, is even better so that you don't have to see it to begin with. Not that you saw it, now it's over, but to never see it at all. And this man didn't have 24-hour news coverage. I remember when Ukraine's war started. A lot of us watched it, and then it got to a certain point where I don't know if I can take much more watching these little children and their mothers say goodbye to their daddies. And in a place, in a global world where 
what do you mean we can't do anything about it? Because we, we won't be able to afford our gas? That's what you're telling me? Or it's way, way more complex than that, which is the case. But you, you get to a point where you don't know that you've got a stomach for it. Solomon didn't have 24-hour news. Now, he was informed better than anyone on the planet. But I just don't think that the human creature was meant to be able to internalize and digest that much misery 24 hours a day. The book seems to know how we would feel if we stared too long and too hard at it because we're not used to it and can't take it. And that's why in chapter 2, Solomon went on and on and on and on about his uh, fantastic voyage through the world of pleasure trying to find the answer to life's most difficult question. What's this all for? Usually, we handle this type of thing with distraction. Especially in a nation like ours, where, um, I mean, good grief, just statistically looking through things that certain, they're all first world problems, much of what we have. Most of the world doesn't have these problems because they don't have the technology to break and to be worried about. Um, but have you ever thought it strange that one of the best ways the world knows how to fight hunger is to put on a big concert? Or uh, overseas, I think it's called comic relief. They put together comedy routines in order to, to fight hunger. So, yes, we're, we're very open to spending our money to be entertained while others suffer. It, it's... <laughs> You look at it in those words and you think that this isn't quite right. But that's exactly what we do. Um, and all that, I think what Solomon is trying to do here, and I think he achieves it, is to say some things that are so far out there that the person comes to its own conclusion. Sometimes there just aren't answers for that type of thing. This world, under the sun, under the curse of sin, has problems that nothing but the blood of Jesus can rectify. And not at that given moment, but in eternity, where there can be justice, there can be righteousness, all accounts can be settled, but not here and not now. Our culture has a problem of trying to think of nothing less than a solution as dramatic as our problems will fix anything. That's a big problem. Life doesn't work that way. Think about it. Just pick one. Turn on the TV, flip, find the news, listen to what they're talking about. Let's just say it's injustice. They want a solution as dramatic as the rampant injustice in our world in order to fix it. And it just doesn't work that way. The way to fix injustice is 10,000 tiny little fixes in your own heart, and that goes for everybody. And only Jesus can help you with that. No one wants to fire up the latest edition of the evening news saying, hey, we figured it out. It's all a heart problem, and it's all everybody's fault, and we'll all need to work on it starting today. No, we want to blame somebody else, have a big, huge fix that covers everybody and probably involves a lot of you can't do this anymore because these people ruined it for everybody. <laughs> That's the way you feel. And this is what Solomon, I, th I think, is after the opening part of chapter 4. 
Um, and by the way, while I'm at it, because I think I probably at least have an entry-level qualification to say such a thing, a lot of churches and a lot of preachers make promises they can't keep either as far as the fact that there's a lot broken about this world we just can't fix. Um, Title of the message, Selected Scripture, Four Ways to a Healthy Marriage. Are you kidding me? It's just four? The Bible has four ways to help me with my marriage. I stood in an altar in front of God and everybody and hitched my wagon to another sinner to try to live together in unity and then raise a a whole house full of sinners and you've got four ways to figure that all out. That's garbage, folks. It's 10,001 little things from the front of this book to the back of this book and without at least a working knowledge of the whole thing, Day in, day out, week upon week, understanding God at His Word, do you ever have a hope of getting through that landmine-riddled wasteland, right? I couldn't be more happy in my marriage, but it's only because of Jesus Christ and allowing me not to ruin that like I've ruined much of everything else. So... Watch those cliched, goofy, Christian culture type stuff as if it's just some take two of these and call me in the morning type thing. It doesn't work that way. Under the curse of sin, this world is a place, to quote one commentator, where our neighbor can be damned as long as we can be king. It's a place where we often relentlessly pursue the neighbor above us by willingly stepping on the head of the neighbor beneath us. That's where we live. And this book is comfortable describing the world as it is. And if that's not a grand introduction, look at verse 4. The preacher's probing deep inside the ugliness of the human heart. What does he say that he sees? Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That's what's driving it all. Envy. So, you got up this morning, made your decision to come to church. It's a little cooler today. It wasn't pouring down rain. Put on your clothes. Maybe had some breakfast. You're sitting here now. How do you like being told from the Bible that everything you do is because someone else you hope will notice you? Or think you're a big deal? Or give a second look? But isn't that true? I mean, how much of our economic system would crash, grind to a halt if no one cared what anyone thought about them? Facebook goes to penny stock that afternoon and is delisted the next day. So with all the rest of them. What, what, what about these storage places you see all over the place to pile all the stuff we bought to impress somebody and then we moved away from them so we can't impress them anymore. So we pile it all up so hopes that one day we'll get a bigger place and impress somebody with it then. Or gym memberships. If there were no beaches or swimming pools, would there be that many people on those treadmills? 
hair dye. I'll pass. Um, <laughs> no, we laugh after we pass on the hair dye, right? Um, automobiles. There's two different types of clothing, right? There's utility and there's style. Which one costs extra? And then there's this stuff called popular. And that's the stuff that they hope by Christmas they can act like they're almost going to sell out of so they can jack the price. So why? You can get what everybody else is talking about. This is true. We don't like it. We don't admit it. But it's true. And then we shouldn't even go back to the idea of what about inside God's house in the group of people we call our church. Is there a, is there a way to use your church to platform your interests? Yes. And the devil knows it. And he loves tearing up churches through groups that are formed in order to keep the church from getting torn apart. He's got our number. It was long ago, but the world hasn't changed. When you get to verse 5 and 6, it might not look like it, but both of these things and their opposites have to do with serving ourselves in selfish ways, fueled by envy. You either give up or you double down. Giving up in verse 5, doubling down in verse 6, and consequently loving and serving our neighbor as Jesus taught us. And that's what we're on about this morning. It's not about me, it's about we. Um, living like Jesus would prevent both of these. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That sounds weird. How does one eat their own flesh? It's not meant to be taken literally. It's a, it's a figurative picture of laziness. You see all about it in the book of Proverbs, same fellow wrote. And it's the idea of folding one's hands to relax and just check out. To, to give up. The, the, this rat race is impossible. I can't keep up. So I'll just check out. I'll do nothing. And the idea here is, well, you're, you're killing your own self by cutting yourself off from everyone else. Doesn't feel like it. That's not necessarily the motivation. But at the end of the day, the lazy has nothing to give his neighbor. In fact, he might actually cost his neighbor. So laziness is a way of hating your neighbor. The verse paints a vivid picture of a man folding his hands, a euphemism for relaxation, at least it starts that way, and wasting away to nothing. He's consuming, but he's not producing. And this isn't complicated to understand. The opposite of that is verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness, and that's a good thing, than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Wind. This could be kind of like a precursor to the old uh, one bird in the hand, two in the bush type thing. It's along the same, same line of thinking. But no better, the author says, is the opposite extreme of endless busyness. Two hands full of toil, not just one. The person works themselves to death in hopes of relaxing later, perhaps, when they have enough. That's how this starts. But tomorrow's promotion brings more pressure. The job that you wished you could have, that guy, well, he retires, you get that guy's job, and then you realize, I might have, should have stayed with what I had. Yes, it's more money. People are looking at me now. 
But I'm losing my mind because there's way more to do and more people to, to whatever. Um, I've got more here. The next degree will just show you what you don't know. I just need one more degree. Well, then you're in another circle of people. You're above others, but they're still more above you. If I could only just get married. This is for the young people. I try to have something for everybody. But remember earlier, hitching your wagon to another sinner? There are some things that marriage solves. There are a lot of things that marriage complicates. The Lord's got you covered either way through His Word. But it's not a solution. It's not arriving. We like to think it is. One of the worst places to avoid this type, not the giving up, but the doubling down, is a ministry, a church. Um, You've got an endless list of good and godly gospel tasks to be accomplished. Nobody calls the church office and says, you've got buildings, we'd like to use them. We're planning a Bible study for children for worshiping the devil. Nobody ever calls about that. But every last day, it seems, we want to gather some homeschool kids, okay, for some moms, something for some men. All of it's good. Most of the time, it's all good stuff, but we can't do it all. And if we try to do it all, we might not have enough energy credits to even pay attention in here when we're supposed to be learning God's Word. You can do this wrong as well, and it's very tempting because it's all good stuff. I had lunch with a pastor a week and a half or two weeks ago, something like that. It had been months since we met because we're busy. Usually order some food and then start asking questions. How's it going? How's the church? The response is typical. Uh, We're wide open. We've got things going on all over the place. Uh, New positions working out great. I couldn't be busier. And I'm drowning in guilt. Because with every one of those great things that we're doing that keep all my time... I can just start listing off on fingers and toes, faithful shut-ins, haven't heard my voice in months. I know how he feels. It's almost as if it's rigged against you, and the devil knows it. Michael Horton reminds pastors that they're not here to leave a legacy by their ministry, as if you could work hard and gather for yourself a good name. The good name is the name of Jesus. We have no legacy. It's His legacy. But read some of the popular leadership titles in some of these Christian bookstores. And by the time they're done telling you how to grow that church, you care more about the people who haven't walked through the door yet than the people who've been here since before you got here. That is a striving after wind. But that's the American way. And heading into a building campaign... We're going to have to pray the devil away from us. Who knows the temptations that will be strapped on along with that ride. It will be a mess. But with God's help we'll get through it. But not without each other. We certainly won't do this alone. If this is about the poor sad sack who doesn't have anybody. A pastor in that position has got to be chief. 
it would be absolute shipwreck. So, in the middle of all of this, under the sun, where life looks so empty and pointless without the right perspective, which he's going to give us, the Solomon of Ecclesiastes says, we need each other. That's chapter 4. You shouldn't try this alone. So, that was hating my neighbor, uh, destroying myself. Let's look at loving my neighbor and loving myself. So, living life for we instead of me, he says, will result in a happier, healthier life. Look at verse 7. Again, he's, he's not turning positive just yet. I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. This one's a little difficult to under, understand uh, diagrammatically, pulling it apart, trying to figure out what he means. But I think that the tell here is his eyes are never satisfied and he never asks, who is this for? A lot of the commentators, myself included in the list of people that think this way, this is self-induced. He's alone because he doesn't have time for relationships. He's never satisfied with riches and he never asks, who am I doing this for? Um, and Mama certainly hadn't told him not to use the word never. He used it twice, didn't he? Never satisfied. Never asks. So he could buy dinner for everyone in the restaurant, but no one wants to sit with him. Know anybody like that? And he's okay with that because he doesn't want to sit with him anyway. So you fill in the blank, Old Man Potter or Ebenezer Scrooge. This is the two hands full of toil, fella. You can have your hand full of rest. I want two hands worth of work myself to death and alienate, alienate myself from everyone else that I know and love. It's possible to know the price of everything but the value of nothing. What does Solomon the preacher say? If you want to make money, do it with someone else. Uh, Matt Chandler, he's done a sermon series on Ecclesiastes. I've listened to some of them. He takes the time to, for a, a, an illustration of how in all his travels and all his years of ministry with all his counselors on staff, is, they've never entertained a call, young girl in tears, comes in confused, and hates her dad. Because he dropped her off at school in a beat-up truck that was embarrassing to look at. Or because he didn't send her on the class trip. Or buy her a pony or whatever. He had a bunch of categories. Says, but it seems almost a regular occurrence to have a young girl in tears who hates her father. Who drove a $100,000 car. Who could have sent the whole senior class on the trip. Could have bought a pony for everyone in town. But he did not know her. She did not know him. She did not understand his love. And life doesn't make sense to her. 
That guy's still stuck. Oh, I'm, he's not asking who he's making all that money for. That doesn't matter. He's just working. So instead, the preacher says, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. That's the first positive thing he said yet. There is such a thing as a good reward. But it's quantified in the category of we rather than me. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Woe to him who is alone who falls and doesn't have someone to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Um, Again, for the young people, if you think that this is a proof text for getting by with something other passages of Scripture say you should not, lightning will strike you. Do not use this verse for what it might sound like it's describing. First world problems, again... In other places in the world, they don't have heaters, and it's cold at night. And when you don't have a fire indoors, you share body heat. That's what this was about. Inside the bonds of marriage, of course. Um, Where were we? (laughs) And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. So that's the buddy system. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Right? That's a quote from a stupid movie. My kids are laughing right now. But it's the truth, isn't it? Uh, Flying solo has its disadvantages. So we, not me, is always going to be better for me than only me. That's the math problem here. Why? Because that's how God designed us to flourish. The thing about your blind spots is you can't see them. You need somebody you love to help you with that. You need somebody you love to say, what you said was fine. The way you said it was horrible. You need somebody to tell you, you know what, they took a cheap shot, but that's not why we're doing this. It's going to be okay. Focus here. On and on and on. It takes two, at least. So there's more that Solomon gives us, but I think we've covered the base for now. Let me leave you with some some practical things to take home. Blind spots, strengths, and weaknesses. We've got to have help. We'll close it up here in a minute. But before the, the closing, here's two, two ways to expose the things that Solomon says will get us in the ditch. To expose laziness, ask yourself whom you are feeding off of and who is doing all the work so you don't have to. You might think that it's the best thing you could do for the world to just check out, but somebody's going to have to keep you up. Somebody's buying the groceries. Somebody's cleaning the bathroom. Um, this doesn't feel to the person involved in it that it's hateful to the others. But best place to learn this is going off to school and having roommates. There's going to be somebody who seems to enjoy cleaning, but not enough of them to take care of those who don't. So we have to pitch in, right? Um, parents, help your kids with this. 
in America, we like to act like youth deserves its own reprieve from anything that might be uncomfortable. Please save your child from the rude awakening that comes on the first day of their job when they realize the reality, the horror that the boss man doesn't think they're practically perfect in every way. It's a bad day. Bad day. Teach them what it is to work. Let them learn through experience that the best sleep of their lives is going to be when they go to bed tired and their muscles need it. The muscles tell the brain, I need to nap rather than the brain and all the worries and all the schedules and all the tests and the AP and all this keep them awake such that they pull all-nighters until they're zombified. We weren't made for that type of thing. To expose overworking, ask yourself who it's all really for. Being busy isn't wrong, and lots of people are busy doing things for others. That's what we should be doing. But do your relationships pay for all your striving after wind? If you ask the people that are important in your life what they think of your job or your promotion, and they think that it's garbage, reassess. You may be overworking. If you can handle it and your relationships, then to God be the glory. It's probably Him in you instead of you yourself. All right, how to land this plane. What I thought about was the story in the New Testament, and this is Jesus who's speaking, but the situation goes where an expert in the law asks Jesus some questions, and it's public, people are listening. And... Jesus, rather than giving him all the factoids that he's asking for, and you know, sometimes you're not really being asked a question, you're being told a question so that when the answer is given, you can look smart in front of the whole room. That, that's what's happening here. And what happens after it's obvious that that's what's going on, Jesus gives a story of the Good Samaritan. The question was, what am I supposed to do? The answer was, (coughs) excuse me, love God and love your neighbor. And that little response at the end, well, cool, but tell me, who is my neighbor? Because if a person, (coughs) excuse me, one of those gnats from uh, where we're trying to build, you know, me and those gnats, (coughs) they followed me. They're seeking revenge. (laughs) Who is my neighbor is a great question because if you can decide who is and who isn't, you've got a group of people you can ignore, right? You only worry about the people who you're obligated to, your real neighbors. So Jesus tells them a story about this guy who's traveling and gets beat up by a bunch of thieves. And a priest comes by, he's supposed to be a good guy walks on the other side of the road a levite comes by supposed to be a good guy other side of the road and then a samaritan supposed to be a bad guy goes over not only helps him but finds him a place to stay pays for all of it and tells the innkeeper if he has any more needs take care of it i'll pay you when i come back what jesus says to this man lawyer expert who 
it said it right there in, in the line. Who was willing to justify himself, ask, who is my neighbor? He looks back at that guy in public, room full of listeners, and says, you tell me, which of those three was neighbor to him? So it's not a question of who's my neighbor. That's a me question. It's whose neighbor are you? That's a we question. Jesus took him out of the world of me and showed him he needs to live in the world of we. I think I'd rather been anybody else on the planet than that fella at that moment when he got his clue as well as everybody else. And who was it that said this? Who's the one asking the question with the wisdom of Solomon who saw the setup, told the story, and then chopped his legs right out from under him without even so much as an effort? Is it some ninja, some warrior, some guy who's so cool that he doesn't have to obey any rules? No. It's the one in Philippians where we're told to have the same mind as that guy which is Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Your King James says, counted it not robbery to be equal with God, but laid aside these things. A kind of confusing way of, of taking the Greek and making it English. The ESV uses the word grasped. This is the guy who didn't two-handed grasp the fact that he was God if you were God would you give it up he willingly laid it aside and then did what emptied himself taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man to live a life into his thirties lay down on a cross to be hoisted into the sky to die for your sins and mine and make heaven possible It's totally backward than the sin-sickened world under the sun. Where do we learn how to live we rather than me? The one who died on the cross for us. It's our only hope. This is strong medicine. It's, it's bitter medicine. It's tough to swallow. You almost just need to go home and fold your hands and let it sting for a while. And then ask the Lord somehow to help you get busy. Not to improve yourself, but to improve others. And happiness, I think, is the byproduct of it. If we do it right. Now the book isn't over. There's more to come. And the, the real meaning of it all is weeks away. But enough for a dose for this, the 10th of June, July actually. So let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven. We thank you for what we've seen here in your word. It's tough and it hurts and we're wrong. But Lord, you can make us right. Ultimately, that took place on the cross. But Lord, while we're here, while we have life, before we're gone, would you teach us how to be happy by being generous with our time and especially with with with. Our stuff, our, our space, our personality. To strip all the me away from us and to put in its place a compassion for others. 
which we see most clearly demonstrated in your act of kindness by substituting your righteousness for ours, our sins were yours. Lord, bathe us in the gospel and make us look like you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.